If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is God's word. Shoo, I know that was kind of a long one. So I know. I, I yeah. felt the trek all the way up here yeah. was maybe a bit much for that. <laughs> all right. So uh, first of all, I'll just say a really cool thing about reading the First Nations version, which Justine brought up, is if you read something like the, uh, the lineages, because they work out the meanings of all the names, it's actually really, uh, really my favorite part about reading it. So... Um, my prayer over us is, uh, is from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And uh, this evening, uh, we are, we're still talking about things uh, Christians believe. And today, the uh, topic is salvation. And so I was thinking about this uh, a couple weeks ago, driving back from Phoenix. There are these trucks um, on the side of the road. And I, I wonder if you've seen these, these trucks. Um, and so when you think about, you know, what Christians believe, something like this might come up. Uh, there's this truck and trucking supply distributor, and they're sharing their faith on the roadside, right? And the large, tra- large tractor trailers say, Christ is the answer. Now, if I asked anybody, do Christians believe that? Chances are you'd say, yeah, Christians, Christians believe that. Um, it seems like a pretty, a pretty simple message. But is it a simple message? Um, what assumptions do you need to accept that, that message. You have to answer the question of what or who is Christ to, you know, agree with that message. Um, you have to ask if Christ is the answer, what is the question that's being asked? The answer to, to what, Right. There's a similar um, two-word declaration of faith that can also be seem just so clear if you're in a Christian community, but if you're not, it, it can be just as ambiguous, and that is Jesus saves. Um, who, is, who is Jesus? Why does Jesus matter more than all the other religious leaders in the world? And what's he saving? And why did it need to be saved, Right? Well, this week in our short uh, quest to address these basic premises, this belief in salvation is, uh, is my focus. Yes, I, I do believe Jesus saves, but that belief is tied to a galaxy of ideas. In fact, I found it very difficult to synthesize this um, at all because it, it really could be a year worth of, of digging. So uh, the way I've, I've decided to go about it is to give you the, the wrong answer and a better answer, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert that they're exactly the same answer. Um, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to unpack, just, just to show you how much you, we, can, we can unpack out of this very short scripture this week. And, and I hope you'll imagine, that'll help you imagine that as you go after the Bible and, and what it means to long for salvation that all of the scriptures talking about this are multifaceted. There's so much more uh, to the picture. So the wrong answer is sin. Okay, so the, uh, John talked about sin last week. Um, a, a very common thing that we would say within Christian circles is Jesus saves you from your sins. And that's become um, a, very, a very simple and common answer. And it might be a little jarring even right now to hear me say that's a wrong answer. That could be a little, like a little nerve-wracking. Like, what, what's, where are we going uh, with this? I asked my mechanic the other day, what, uh, what does it mean to sin? So this is my mechanic is not a Christian, and uh, I've told him I'm just kind of crowdsourcing here, and he kind of thought he goes Im- immorality, and I said, okay, what's that? And he goes, oh. bad things you do, you know. Well. Here's the trouble, immoral according to who, right? I, and I didn't push him. He was trying to figure out a check engine light on the car. Let's not, let's not get too involved, right? But, um, but, but I think if you, if you began to ask more questions, it would get more murky for, for him and for all of us, really, like bad things according to what standard, right? Like you have to start asking the questions under the questions. Even to answer the question of what is sin is a very complicated 
question, one that John spent good time on last week with you all. Um, there have to be all these other assumptions. Uh, the other um, problem with the statement, Jesus saves you from your sin, is it's often aimed at you or me alone. It, it's, in the worst case, it's like Jesus is an agent that I hire to negotiate terms between me and God. Just somebody I hire for me that negotiates my terms between him and God. This way of thinking is a condition of our individualism. Um, it's a cultural phenomena. It's got a lot of sources. It's very complicated. But behind it are all kinds of assumptions about the ultimate source of meaning, truth, and reality. And the, the assumptions that we have all grown up with, that we've all lived in, just by nature of being in, the, in our Western culture today, means that we are skeptical of meta-narratives, big stories that tell the truth that stands over all creation. We have grown up in a deep skepticism that that is possible. And because of that skepticism, what do you do if there's not a meta-narrative, if there's not a big story, is you have to become the one who discerns what the world means for you. You become at the center of the quest. You can't you can't layer that onto somebody else. You don't want to assume somebody else's story. So the skepticism that we have grown up in puts ourselves at the center. And as Christians, as skeptics, as curious truth seekers, we've all grown up with that skepticism baked in. So listen to this statement in light of that skepticism. Jesus saves you from your sins. That becomes a, a statement that somebody can either look at and say, I find that true for me, so I will accept it for me. Or somebody might say, I find that false for me, while it might be true for you. As we read the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, and, and engage with the Christian faith, um, it does not frame things that way. Even our text tonight it does say you will be saved, right? You are involved, even our little short text tonight. And so it absolutely applies to you. But even this little short scripture that Shua read to us was written not to a person. It was written to a city, a whole city. Not only a city, it was written to Rome, the center of the strongest empire in the world. It was written to a community of Christians there, but it wasn't written to a person. No matter how you frame it, it was written to a community, to a city at the center of an empire. And it said, if you confess, you roam with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does that mean that people were to engage with that individually? Absolutely but it meant the community, it meant the city. It meant people needed to consider that as a huge, huge calling and statement. Also, our text uh, tonight um, didn't say if you confess your sins, it actually said if you confess Jesus is Lord. Um, elsewhere, we are supposed to confess our sins. That is a, absolutely a practice that we're called to, to do that you, there's a power in confession of sin one to another. Um, but here it says, confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. This should bring up questions within us. What's a Lord? Um, why do we need to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And so in light of all those things, what would it mean to be saved? Okay. So, um, so what's the better answer? The better answer is, uh, is sin. Uh, Jesus is saving us. But it's not just your sin, not just my sin. God in Christ, Jesus, is saving us from the power of the real and pervasive reality of sin. And this is, G this is what John was, was unpacking last week. But the Bible's de definition of sin is absolutely devastating. It's devastating. Um, it's not just your immoral choices. It's not just the bad things you do. It's behind every single one of them. It's in everything all around us. It's 
massive. Um, I'm, I'm going to say that everyone in the world believes we need to be saved from sin. Uh, don't believe me? Let's, let's consider uh, some things that people want. It's funny because John just mentioned one of them. It's a safe space, he said. Um, this one's a little, this one could feel a little trendy. Um, and actually, like, this is, uh, this is a concept that's getting looked at. I'll get into that for a second. But this, so what does it mean to be a safe space? This is if you're a youth in trouble, this is a place where you can go and somebody's going to look out for you and help you out. This is a very well-intentioned movement um, that, and I quote, intended to be free of bias, conflict, criticism, or potentially threatening actions, ideas, or conversations. Why, why do we need places like this? Why do we need concepts like this, right? Because we have biases. We have in, inward inclination towards certain types of people and away from others without even thinking it through. Um, we have conflict with one another because of the disagreements that we have. Uh, we criticize because we can take a negative stance toward others, sometimes because of pain in our lives and things that we're worried about and such. Um, threatening actions, ideas, and conversations happen because we, we don't want to be in danger. We, we want to intimidate another person so that they don't come near to us and hurt us, and so we start harming one another. Why do we do all these things? Because we want to be safe ourselves. We want to be saved. Now, if you're following this movement, um, they're already having to change the movement. Why? Because as you teach about being a safe space or a safe place, uh, people have begun to take that concept and use it as a, as a way to not listen to diverse ideas, to not engage in conversation. They'll say, I want to be safe, so I'm not going to talk to that person. It's a way of disengaging. The very idea gets twisted and corrupted so easily. It's not hard to actually take a very well-intentioned idea meant to keep people safe and actually use it to be unsafe in the end. Um, so now, now the term brave spaces is being used to try to like work out a better way to do that. Safe might mean your viewpoint does need to be challenged. What, what does this mean? See, the good intentions can be twisted themselves, right? Um, sometimes not even on purpose. Um, look, you might have some feedback for me about this very sermon, um, and I'm, I don't feel safe. I don't want to hear it. Um, no, but that's a joke, but, but right? Like, it's so hard to know when do I move forward, when, do I, when, when is being safe? But the point is, we all want this experience of feeling safe. And, and, and whose version of it wins? That's it's a hard thing to figure out, but we want it. Um, okay, what about, what about justice? Um, this would be the flip side of safe space, right? Like, we want justice. So when, when somebody's an unsafe person, right, what do we want for that? We want them to face the consequences for that so that they can't go out and keep perpetrating the things that they do. You could look at the left or the right or the political mid middle of our culture, and everybody wants Justice, we want things to be right, fair, and adjudicated well. We don't want people to get away with evil. We don't want innocent people to be treated like they're guilty. We want shameful things that are hidden to be exposed. We want truth to win out over deceit. What, what is that that we want? We want to be saved from the injustices in our world. We want to be kept safe. We do, and we should. Um, here's another one that we want, the good life. Um, this is the quest for the life that's the least negatively impacted. I saw an article this week. I forget. It was like the Atlantic or something like that. Um, but it was, it was this article about um, the ideal future that people set up for themselves and how they try to work very hard to, to win that ideal future. That could be a retirement or it could be some kind of like next step for your family. And how data shows that most people that have that kind of goal and work toward it are very disappointed when they get to the destination. Um, and why are they disappointed? Well, often for people, they get where that is supposed to be and something intrudes, right? Whether it's uh, an issue like, um, you know, a physical issue or something begins to go wrong with their mind in that retirement year, like when it was supposed to be glorious and you're supposed to be coasting, and using all this money, actually, something's not working, right? Your body is not cooperating, right? Um, or they're suffering the impact of all the hard work. They worked so hard for, the, for this ideal future that they've messed up themselves, right? Um, or the plan just doesn't pan out because 
plans change and we make mistakes. But often that, that very aim for the good life ends in grave and deep disappointment. And people are, are more disappointed for having had the goal. That's kind of what the article was saying. So we, we long, we long for a great life. We want to be, why, why, why do we long for that? Because we want to be saved from the darkness and the, the brokenness. All We want a different experience. We want peace and tranquility and good time with our families. So I said the Bible's um, definition of sin is devastating. There's a few words for it. This is, um, if you go here, you've heard this many times. You'll probably hear it about once every third sermon from me. So um, three core words for sin in the Bible, transgression. Um, anybody remember what transgression means? I'm looking at kids right now. Anybody, anybody? Crossing the line. Transgression means to cross the line. Um, and uh, my, my great example of this, Abby's favorite, is my um, rule with her about curbs when she was a little kid. So she was not allowed to pass by a curb. And so anytime there was a curb, she had to stop, look at me, and I would give her the signal, could she go forward or not? That's creating a, a transgression line. Don't cross it. Um, and a lot of times, especially with God, it's a similar motivation to my motivation with Abby. It's to keep you safe. Um, it's not just to, like, control you. It's, it's like they're... There's a reason you need to consider where the line is. Um, crossing the line in Scripture is most importantly God's line, but God also grants that others can make lines too. Governments, families, business owners, people. You can make lines. You say, hey, don't cross that line with me. I really would appreciate it if you didn't do that. That's all okay, and it's, and it's behind this idea of transgression. And when any of these entities, whether it's a person or a government or a family, crosses God's line, it's sin which is why we expect more from those with more authority because they're actually line drawers and we expect that they should be held accountable for what they do. Then there's iniquity, the word for the perversions of the inner self, like the inward proclivity in the wrong direction, like to lust for what others have when we should be content, right? You don't have to think that through. You don't have to plot it. You can just wake up in the morning and want what somebody else has. And that's iniquity. It's this inner twisting of the human heart that bends in the direction of what we should not be or do. Um, it can be behind those preferences within us to like and want to be around people that make us comfortable when we should be reaching out to people who are different than us. But that's just what's natural to us. It can be behind our proclivity to be self-focused when we should be loving God and others first. How many of you have ever woken up in the morning and just thought about someone else and just thought, what do they need this morning? Your first thought, I wonder if they need coffee, you know? No, we think about ourselves. It's natural. And then there's the word sin itself, which is the most devastating of all the definitions. It's the word for not hitting a target at perfect dead center. So it, it infers actually that you're trying. It infers that you're shooting at a target. It's an archery term. And you don't shoot at one to miss, right? Like, that would be weird. You don't go like, can I hit the tree over there? You, you shoot at the target to hit the target, and you're going to try to get it right. But sin is the word for falling short, missing, even when you try. It includes, um, in the Bible, uh, things that you should have done but forgot or failed or felt too worn out to do. It includes things you did by accident. When you run over someone's glasses that they dropped in your car, it's sin. And it's a sin that they drop their glasses. A theologian in our tradition, Cornelius Platinga, defines it so well. He says, it's when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So that means that global warming is because of sin. It means when your genes wear out too soon, it's because of sin. When you misunderstand one another, it's sin. Cancer is because of sin. Mental illness is because of sin. It's not just what you do. It's the whole mess of the way things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, ask anyone you know if they feel like the world is the way it ought to be. And I have a feeling you'll get a pretty universal no, it's not. And that's why I say that everyone believes in the Bible's definition of sin, that we want to be saved from it. We're not satisfied, and we shouldn't be. 
and good news. Um, God intends to save us from sin, to make things the way they ought to be. Now, who wants that to be true? Even if it seems impossible, wouldn't it be good if it were true? Wouldn't it be good? Now, now that I've done that and I've said, um, yeah, Jesus is, is here to save us from sin in that definition. Not just the, the mistake you made here and there. It's not just you hiring an agent, but it's the whole big bloody mess, right? Now I want to illustrate from this very short snippet of Paul's uh, letter to the church in Rome, which says, as Shua read earlier, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, um, you will be saved. I want to illustrate that this is getting at the whole big mess, the whole big picture. Now, first of all, I want you to notice something kind of, uh, it really is, um, it's in these words, it's implicit in these words. It permeates the scriptures. This is all framed as deeply uh, relational with God. Even this, this scripture, if you confess with your mouth, um, this does not just mean, um, you know, coming up and standing in front of the church and saying, I believe in Jesus. It's far, far more than that. This is when you go from the place of inquiry, where you're curious about God, to a place of being proud to be affiliated with God, to be openly affiliated and connected. It's, um, it's like, but far greater, but it's, it's like when you decide that you love someone, and part of that is you're going to be out and about in the world together, right? Everywhere you, you're, you're going to be out and about in the world together, visibly, vocally affiliated with one another. It is to go so, so deep in relationship that it goes beyond just something that you're aware of to dropping deep into your soul and not, you know, not just into your heart like the blood pumping organ, but into the core of your soul's center where your belief drops down to being more than an idea, to being an embraced reality that begins to shape your life. An, idea, an identity that you draw comfort and strength from, an inner reality that enlightens and animates your life that you begin to live out of. It becomes like source material for you. And so when somebody says, who, who is Jesus to you? You say, he's my Lord, he's everything. It's just the natural answer. That's what that means. It's like the level up from self-worth because self-worth could lead you to believe that you're worthy for being cared for or listened to or watched out for. It's, it's a level up from that because it doesn't depend, depend on your self-appraisal, like I am worthy. It's anchored in God's existence. It's not just anchored in other people saying, we promise we'll try to love you. It's anchored in a real connection with your creator that says, that where you're saying, I know who made me. I know who I am. I know who God is. It's having a deep, a deep enough belief um, that we people have value and that God actually hears us and sees us because he created us, um, that you come to know and relate to exper and experience God in the midst of anything, anywhere. No matter what you're facing, you have that abiding hope deep within you. It means if you can't find a safe space that you have a deep connection with God within you that can help you walk through anything. Uh, while I was on my retreat, I read uh, a book I've had on my shelf for a bit called Everything Sad is Untrue. I don't know if you've heard of this one, but it's by uh, Daniel Nairi, a really interesting story. Um, his family was, uh, they, were, they lived in Iran and not only was he uh, Muslim and his family were Muslim, but they were like the top tier uh, Muslims. They were the, the pure Muslims. They were the, the you know, devout, like top, um, I, it's, I don't, we don't quite have this in Christianity, but it's where you've come from the pure strand of the religion. And so you've got all the privileges. And his family was wealthy. And he talks about, they, he grew up in a pomegranate orchard and there was like a Ferris wheel the neighbor had made where he, it was like, what a life, right? Um, and he, um, there, there were some complications in life, but genuinely it was pretty good. They were connected to generations uh, of their family. They were very privileged. 
uh, but they went to a wedding in, um, in London, and actually his sister was being kind of picked on by another kid, and the kid said, stick your, door, your fingers in the door, and she did it innocently, and the kid slammed the door on her finger, and it like almost cut it off. And as she was weeping and ran into a room, she had a vision of a man who said, um, it's going to be okay. And when she came out, her aunt said, you saw Jesus, didn't you? And her sister said, yes. And all of a sudden, Daniel Nairi's mother is faced with, this is going to be a hard thing to explain back in Iran. And, and she somehow decides, I'm going to go figure out who Jesus is before I have to like clean up this mess. And so Daniel Nairi's mother goes and starts reading the Bible for the, during their short stay and like goes to talk to somebody at a church in London and ends up just having like this spiritual revolution within her where she realizes I've never heard of a God that's like gracious and loving and forgiving before. And all of a sudden his mother is like, I, I want to believe in Jesus. And they go back uh, to Iran. So, you know, she had this wonderful life. Here's the short story is she goes back to Iran, gets involved in the underground church, gets caught, um, and they're about to, um, she's, she go, she's interrogated, and she's, she's told, you can repudiate this faith. You have, I think it was 24 hours, and then you're done. We're going to, your, your life's over. And, uh, and she had to flee the country. And, then, and now they're, um, they're running, they're um, in a refugee camp, it's like terrible, they get to the U.S., life is hard, actually she ends up marrying an abusive man, years and years of pain. And I'm reading this little book by this guy who is her child, grew up in this situation, and I keep waiting for the happy part where it's like, and then we got to America and it was awesome, but no, it's like actually they're all by themselves, he gets called a bubble butt all the time, um, like his mom, is, her relationship is not happy, actually. She has to run away. Um, and you keep going, where's the, where's the happy part? Where believing in Jesus is great, right? But the incredible thing, um, and, and I actually watched a video of her recently where she says, it was all worth it um, because I know Jesus. And you go, wow, really? Are you serious? Now, I guarantee she longed to experience life in a more safe and happy way. I mean, look, she was running. She was trying to get her kids out of harm's way. They would go stay in motels to get away from the abusive husband. I guarantee you she wasn't just like, I like this. This is nice. But she'd found something deeper. That's incredible. Um, her kids have both written about how the refugees got mistreated and how that should change, how it's not okay. It's, it's not one or the other. See, it's not like um, they, they got the good life and they had to just be happy with, with that or they, or they got a bad life and they had to be miserable. It's like they were able to say, our mom found something deeply meaningful to her and we also encountered a lot of suffering and it's not the way it's supposed to be. But that deep um, connection of inner safety and hope um, changed his mother's life. And, you, and we need that deep connection inside of us because sin's impact is, is absolutely massive. And no amount of, of safe spaces are going to be sufficient to fix this, Right? There's a God, the scriptures say, who can be so deeply known, and that is core to the doctrine of salvation, that like even in the midst of the, the worst and most trying times, we can be deeply known and seen and have hope um, before we're saved from the impact of sin physically. God can give a deeper level of salvation that works from the inside out, and we call that hope. It's hope. So that's just embedded in this little scripture. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Like, do you see what I'm saying? It's this deep inner reality that permeates that statement. It's not just a thing you say. Next, um, Jesus is Lord. What, what's a Lord? Um, now, usually when you read it in the Bible, it's the word for a political ruler or authority. I'm going to give you a little quick uh, hot tip on the Bible. If you're reading the Old Testament, 
you'll see Lord written out several different ways. So this is just a little, little quick. The way the English Bibles have gotten around trying to not have like a thousand words for God is they'll capitalize, all capitalized Lord is actually what we call the Tetragrammatron, which is like the name of God that's given in the Old Testament. It derives from the verb to be and where God actually told, um, told Moses, he said, I am, tell them that I am has sent you. And, and it's like saying, I am the ever existent one. And Hebrew people would not speak this. Um, they would not say it. It was too profound, too holy to say. And so some, sometimes people will say Jehovah or Yahweh in English. But the, when, when your English Bible has an all capitalized Lord, it's that, that term, that name, okay? If you see Lord with a, with a capitalization at the beginning, it's probably something like Adonai, which is, which is similar to saying my Lord, um, which is kind of um, will depend on the definition of Lord I'm about to give you. Um, and then the lower caps Lord, probably the most common, is just an authority figure. Um, it could be political. It could be a priest, um, something like that. So that, that word that we often, you know, Jesus is Lord, like that, that's the word for all authority figures. Like technically... At this church, I'm a Lord, um, you know, pastor, look at that. Um, but, it, you know, so is every police officer, so is every politician, so is every owner of a business. Like, it's, it's the term for that. Um, now, the, uh, the name for God in the ancient languages would definitely not have been mixed up with the word Lord. In fact, they, like I said, they considered it too um, sacred to speak. And then you, when you get into the New Testament, there's a word kurios, which is really more like that lowercase Lord, which is political in nature. It's like the master or the authority figure. And usually when we hear Jesus being described as Lord in the New Testament, it's, it's that. He's being called a political uh, authority figure. Now, remember when I earlier I said we all want justice, we want to be saved from the impact of sin in our public life. This is actually getting at that longing. Um, we want authorities to be held to a high standard. We want the scales of justice to be managed well. We want evils to be exposed and condemned um, for innocent people to be free and defended. Um, when we've talked, even at Alpha, um, this comes up over and over. One of the top concerns people have that they want faith to address is the political problems in their world. They want faith to have something to do with that. There's this tension because it's like faith and politics seem a little scary, but at the same time, it's like if people of faith don't speak up about injustice, that's not good. And if my faith doesn't like change some of these worries that I have about our world, that's, that's not going to be enough. And the interesting thing is actually for them to say, for, for Paul to say, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, was, it was a political statement. It was. It wasn't spiritualized to them. What did it mean, think about it, in Rome to declare Jesus is Lord, to say that. What would that mean? Well, the term was reserved then for the Caesars of Rome. Um, the Romans were in power, and even their coins, check out this coin. Um, the coins declared two things. I know you can't, you can't necessarily read all of this, but on that, on that side of the coin, like when Jesus was given a coin and asked you know, if he should pay his taxes, this is the one he would have had. And the, the first side actually declares that Caesar Augustus is the divine son of his father, and it actually declares his divinity. So when Jesus said, well, like when he claimed he and the father were one, that actually wouldn't have just, people wouldn't have viewed that as a merely religious statement. They would have viewed that as a comparison to what Caesar said, okay? They would have. They just would have. And then on the back, Maxim Pontif. And so that, that means the, it's Latin, for the highest ruler or Lord. Like this very coin declares Caesar is God and Caesar is Lord. Every, when they pulled money out of their pocket, it said right on there, Caesar is God, Caesar is Lord. So what would it mean for somebody to say, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord? First of all, as with Daniel Nairi's mother in Iran, it wouldn't have been safe to say. It would not have been safe. Um, this is why Paul was often on the run. Paul, the writer of this letter. That's why many Christians in this city that got this letter ended up being burned like candles by the Romans because it was something that they, they, they the Romans viewed it as a political statement. 
it meant something for how they were going to behave in the empire. It was going to change how they engaged with the empire. The statement was oppositional to any worldly empire. Not only, um, it's not saying that those empires don't have authority. Jesus elsewhere says that they do, but it's a given authority, a sub-authority that they actually have to bow before King Jesus, that they're accountable, which is to say there is no nationalism allowed in Christianity because your top identity must be that Jesus is Lord and then everything falls under that. No ruler or ruling class stands on the same level as Jesus. Jesus is maxim pontif. The servant king who returns on a white horse and perfectly blends love and justice. So who is the true Lord? Who is our good shepherd, our master? Jesus. Um, now, the Jewish people of his day were hoping he was going to be a revolutionary, actually. Um, they were hoping he would be Maxim Pontif. They were. But what they were hoping for was somebody who was going to be Caesar-like in his rule, who was going to rule with an iron fist, who was going to drive other people out. But Jesus taught his disciples something, right? He, I don't know if you remember this, but he said, people want a lord authority. He used the same word, lord. He want, they want a lord authority over people. And people, they would have thought of Caesar. They would have thought of, uh, of Herod, the puppet king of, of the provinces of Israel. They would have thought about that. He said, people want to lord it over one another, um, like all the politicians we're preparing to vote for, like the CEOs and tech entrepreneurs, like the power-hungry nonprofit leaders, like parents who just want to rule with an iron fist, like bullies on the playground. They want to lord it over you. Submit to me, right? But Jesus said, not so with you. Why? Why did Jesus say that? He said, you're going to be following my pattern. And what did Jesus do? He reversed everything. Jesus actually goes before the lords of their day. He did, before the Jewish lords, before the Roman lords. And he, um, he took the injustice that they were doling out upon himself. He was crushed by the lords. Why? Why does he do that? Well, in doing so, he exposes the sin in them. It's really important to say that. Like, Jesus' death on the cross is not just a, a transaction for people's sin. It also exposed the sin of an empire. It exposed the sin of the people who had been called to put him at the center, who were now rejecting him. It was, it was an exposure. It was like pulling the curtain back and saying, look, it's not good. But it also was to show what a good Lord looks like. One who brings transformation by giving power rather than by exploiting the weak. And think about it. Jesus came to save us, not just from the way you get mad at your coworker or that you looked at a hot girl this week or whatever, it is that, that's involved, right? But he suffered under an, in, an unjust empire. He suffered rejection for not being the powerful revolutionary. He served people who had nothing to give back, the poor and the sick. He served first and allowed people to respond in grace. And, and actually, justice is then reserved under his rule for those who will have nothing to do with mercy, but demand to be the lords of their own lives. He, he reverses things entirely. He, he has a different way of ruling. See, his salvation gets under and at the whole system. It exposes it for what it is. It goes after the ways we perpetuate injustice, trying to lord it over people. He goes right at the heart. He exposes evil in governments, in families, and in people as we reject the way of the cross. And he's providing a new pattern through which we can love and serve and show mercy and seek transformation without lording it over people. See, the Jewish people were waiting for a new political revolutionary, one they called Christ, which means anointed one. Christ is the answer, right? The Christ was their anticipated anointed leader who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and put them back into power. And for Jesus to be declared as their Christ, one who suffered and exposed 
and served was utterly shocking to them. It didn't fit the plan. To confess Jesus is Lord is to begin a journey of learning to walk under gracious lordship, a way that stands alone, far above the hopes we have in, in our national affiliation, the power of our family, the power of our people. It's, it's a new way of being, and it's not going to fit. It will not. But it's salvation. And finally, believe in your heart that God raised him from the, from the dead. How does that save us? Well, I mentioned the good life earlier. We all want things to be better for peace and prosperity, for, for things to be the way they ought to be, for the futility, suffering, and exhaustion to come to an end. Um, see, Jesus didn't just resurrect from the dead because that was the formula to get you out of jail. His resurrection isn't simply a signal that you can ask God to forgive you of the bad thing you did, and he'll do it. Doesn't that just even seem a little trivial in the grand scheme to think about it that way? That God would enter into the human story, live, suffer, and die on a cross, and then you know, reverse de his death for thousands of people to witness just so you wouldn't get in eternal trouble for bad things you do? Well, the resurrection is far deeper than that. The resurrection does give hope to broken people. It means our faults and failures aren't the whole story, but they get absorbed into a far bigger story, a so much bigger story. It means that everything sad indeed will become untrue, that there's a life beyond this life. It means eternity is real and that embodied humans will inhabit it here on earth. It means what quantum physics is tapping into, right? That there are layers of reality beyond what we can see, but it means more. It means that those unseen layers are better and that God is there. It means that when you feel that flicker of hope in your heart, that sense that there's got to be more out there and that maybe there's something good, that you're right. The Bible says Jesus was exalted into the presence of God himself, sits at his right hand after he'd suffered here for a relatively short time. And salvation means that he offers that to people, that to receive the mercy of the cross and to come to that place of identification with Jesus where you confess in your heart and believe deeply that God has raised him from the dead means to enter into the hope of what's next, that God's undoing the impact of sin on the whole creation. Not that he takes us back to the Garden of Eden, but that he actually redeems everything that we've done, the failures, the faults, the shortcomings, the things we didn't think of, and he actually takes all that we've built and made in our flaw and failed state and he turns it into a new city on earth that we've built with him. And he purges the creation of the impact of our transgressions, our iniquity, and the sins we've committed on purpose and on accident. Which, by the way, means that you can confess your sins and you don't have to hide them anymore, among many other things. It means our lives are lived for a purpose as we feel they must be, that the loss and the futility and the pain doesn't get the final say. And don't you want that to be true? Wouldn't that be great if it were true? The resurrection of Jesus says it's true and it's already started. You can have hope that God is in our very midst working the work of salvation now. If Jesus is already raised and sitting at the right hand of God, it's already begun. And it begins on the inside and it works out. It means every good work we do for the case of the safety of the vulnerable, the cause of justice, the enjoyment of the good life even can be done with an anchored hope that the perfect will follow the imperfect. Um, Daniel Nairi at the end of his little, little book, um, which by the way, this book is not, it's very accessible. It's actually written for young adults. It's not hard to read. Um, but he, he does engage his own question about how his mom endured what she endured. And I thought it was so good. Um, here's what he said. He said, I don't know how my mom was so unstoppable. Maybe it was anticipation, hope. The hope that some final fantasy will come to pass and make everything sad untrue. And he goes on, he recounts for a second the, some of the trials, the deaths they saw, the refugee camps, um, he, he made a friend in the refugee camp who'd been splattered with Agent Orange 
um, all the people that they encountered here in the States who weren't that kind and weren't that great. Even a bunch of them were in the church, including his abusive stepdad. And he just talked about all the hard things, right? And, he said, and then he said this. He said, if you believe something better is coming, you can endure anything with anticipation. What you believe about the future will change the way you live in the present. That's how she did it. He, he went into a little bit of, he, he said, look, when we went into that refugee camp, it was going to be a hard time. There's no way around it. So you can either just think about how every situation after this might just be hard too, and it'll make it all really miserable, or you can hope that something better lies beyond it. And he kind of put that choice out there, and he said, Look, you may not be convinced about this faith my mom had, but one of those is going to get you through, and one of them is going to depress you. Pick your poison, right? By the way, if you have faith, you actually might be like my mom who said it was all worth it in the end. And she did that because she believed that God was gracious. She believed that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's Lord over all the lords. So whether they were in the United Arab Emirates or in Rome, actually, where they were in a refugee camp, or even in America, where there was a lot of brokenness, that there was a Lord above all the lords. Um, she had si shifted from one safety to another, right? From the safety of her wealthy, priv privileged life in Iran to um, with, with where she had, by the way, she was on the good side of justice and the good life and wealth and privilege, and she was at home in her culture, to a safety that was only inward, where everything else from her, you know, was being stripped away from her, but she felt a safety and a connection to the creator who'd made her that she'd never felt. And it, and it, she says, it outshone that other safety. She had a deep relationship and faith that tied her to God and others um, her connection, by the way, to her church was what put her life in danger. They asked her to turn over all the other Christians, and she said, no, I'll die. I'll, I'd rather die. And then she said to herself, which is good, I think I'll try to escape before I die, and she succeeded. <laughs> Miraculously, by the way. Like, if you read the book, it's, it's insane. It should not have happened. Um, but in every way in ultimate ways, in the deepest ways, that's what it means to believe in salvation, that everything sad isn't, doesn't have the last word. It's, it's happening, but it's not all there is. It doesn't have the last word. And that's why we approach this table every week, is this table is a moment where we, we kind of realign our hearts. Like, if you're a Christian, you're going to look at this and say, where am I at with Jesus as Lord? It's realignment. Is, is he everything to me? Does he have the top-tier allegiance of my soul? Um, and we identify and bind ourselves to him above all else. For anyone who's here observing and just checking this out, this is a moment to ask, what would it be like to believe this? Like, what if I, what if I opened my heart, right? Um, we identify and bind ourselves to him, and we believe that it didn't end on that cross, that God raised him from the dead. So we leave this table empowered to hope and serve and do good works and persevere because we have been and are being saved. That's what Christians believe, okay? That we are safe ultimately and eternally in Jesus. So next I'm gonna pray and there's gonna be two minutes of silence after that. We'll do the three weekly acts of worship the Christian church has always done. Um, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together, as I just explained. And who that's for is anybody who's willing to admit their need and accept God's free and gracious gift, um, which is Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. Um, you don't need to come to him strong, by the way. Um, you come to him saying, Jesus is Lord, which is to say, you are strong while I am weak. Um, then we're going to sing together. This is, a, this is a way that we take these truths and just embed them in our souls to where we remember them, um, remember them deeply. Uh, we give at this time, which is a, another way of saying Jesus is Lord. Like, Jesus, your kingdom is like priority one in my life, and that includes my financial life and, and everything else. Um, and these are all ways that we like embed this worship 
um, of this God who, who we believe is, uh, is doing something deeper than what we experience on the base level in this life. Um, I'm going to pray over all of these things, and then there's going to be a two-minute silence for just you to reflect, uh, confess, um, and even just reach out to God, even if it's for the first time. So pray with me. Father, I pray as we consider these things um, that we would recalibrate our hearts, um, that you would show us to yourself as Lord. I think about that moment with uh, Daniel Nairi's sister and just his, his mom um, just, just flustered trying to figure out what do I do because my daughter's saying she believes in Jesus and her just running towards something and you revealed yourself to her. Um, I pray that even if our faith is that scattered, that you would draw us near and that you would give us hope. Um, I pray that as we come and receive this bread and wine, that we would receive it with gratefulness and thankfulness as the kids learn today, and that we would feed on the hope that you give to us and that you would refresh our souls. I pray that as we sing together, that we would um, sing with our hearts, um, that we would take these truths and apply them um, deep down and that you would use this time to just refresh us and bind us to you. And as we give, God, we pray that you would provide deeply um, for all of our needs. And we pray that you would take this little bit of money that we put together and that you really would bear a harvest with it, that you would um, use it to help other people see who you are, to have this hope deep within them. Um, that the work of this church would be used by you and would be honoring to you. I pray that you would bless the work of the hands of all of our people as they go out and make money in their jobs, that you would provide for them, and that you would give them a sense of meaning in their work. And God, now as we come before you and pray, I pray that you would meet us and that we would just be able to sense your spirit's listening ear and that we would be able to freely and safely confess in your presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name.